looking to sound like you know what's going on in the world? Pop culture, social strategy, comedy, and other funny stuff? Well, join the club and settle in for the Jeff Dwoskin Show. It's not the podcast we deserve, but the podcast we all need with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Andy. Thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week. And this week is no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 45 of Live from Detroit, The Jeff Duoskin Show. So great to have you. As always, I am your host, Jeff Duoskin. And we have an amazing show for you today. Yes, we do. Executive producer and showrunner of Fuller House and so many other great shows is here to talk with us. Brian Bihar. That's right. Brian's here. That's exciting. It's coming up real soon. It's a special episode because Brian's actually sponsoring the episode as well. So that's really exciting and new for us. So listen for that coming up and our great conversation coming up shortly after that. It's going to be exciting. And you know what else is exciting? All the shows that I've guested on this past week or so. That's right. Jeff Dewaskin is everywhere. I'm everywhere. You can catch me on The Fandom Effect, The Successful Screenwriter, and coming up soon with the cast of Some Nobody, Zach and Dylan, we taped a chess show. I know, that sounds exciting, doesn't it? It was. It was really fun. You can see these shows on my YouTube channel. Just search The Jeff Dewaskin Show on YouTube, and I have a whole playlist dedicated to shows that I've been on. You can check them out there. And since you're already hanging out on YouTube, you can also check out Crossing the Streams. That's a live show I do every Wednesday, 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time with a bunch of great friends of mine. And we have rotating guests and we talk about shows you should be streaming. So since you're already on YouTube and you're already hanging out on my channel because of what I just said earlier, make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel. Hit the little bell for notifications. And when we go live, you'll get a little notice and you can watch us live. How cool is that? Jeff Dewaskin live with his buddies? That's right. It's a hilarious show. Lots of great information. You're going to love it. You're going to love it. And it's interactive, meaning you can talk to us and we'll talk back at you. What? You talk to us? Yes. It's interactive. It's fun. You're going to love it. Mark your calendars. Wednesday, 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Go to YouTube. Subscribe. Notifications. We'll send you all the details. See you there. I do want to thank everyone who has followed and liked my podcast on their favorite podcast app, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, Humbly, Podchaser, CastBox, whatever podcast app you love. Thank you. It's no longer subscribe to a podcast, by the way. It's now follow and like. Follow my podcast on Apple. They got rid of the word subscribe. People thought, wait a minute, do I have to pay for this? And no, it's absolutely free. 100% free. That's right. You're like, wait a minute, I'm getting this for free? I would pay so much money. I know, I know, but it's gonna it's free. Enjoy it. Because it's free, do me this favor. Tell all your friends how much you love the podcast. Say, hey friends, hey family, hey guy getting to his car in the parking lot at the grocery store I just happened to be at. You should be listening to Live from Detroit, the Jeff Duoskin show. It's a podcast. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm going to stand and then stand over them while they click follow and don't leave until they do that. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And if you can get them to sign up for my mailing list, which you can do at jeffisfunny.com, you should do it also. That'd be an extra bonus. But either one's great. Thank you so much. I appreciate each and every one of you. Thank you. And now it's time for the social media tip. 
All right, coming up in the interview with Brian Bihar, we talk a little bit about Twitter towards the end, and he talks about how much of an impact playing hashtag games and hashtag roundup had on him and his Twitter experience. So that's cool. So, so I'm excited for you to hear that testimonial. But also, I just wanted to point out, for those of you not on Clubhouse, maybe you have an Android or just haven't checked out Clubhouse, haven't got an invite yet because they're in beta, it's starting to come to Twitter. It's called Twitter Spaces, however. I just got access to it. If you hold down that little compose button, it's only on mobile and it's only on iOS. And I think it's rolling out to Android soon if it already hasn't. The only way to know if you have it is if you click the compose button. That's like that little blue round thing that floats in the bottom right hand of your app that looks like a little feather because, you know, people write with feathers now as they did in the olden days. But if you click on it, you can click on spaces and you can create your own. But also in the area where they show fleets, if you see like these weird purple circles up there, that's a space that's going on. You can join in. So the the whole audio experience, talking, town hall type thing is coming to Twitter and hopefully they'll advance the UI on Twitter and make it very usable and a competitor to Clubhouse to include us all. So I just wanted to mention that. Keep an eye out for that. Check it out. It's pretty cool. It's a great way to connect with people. And that's the social media tip. I do want to thank everyone who supports the sponsors week after week after week. I can't thank you enough. It means so much to me and the show. It's how we keep the lights on, folks. It's how we keep the lights on. Every time you support a sponsor, they tell the world, hey, you should be sponsoring live from Detroit, the Jeff Duoskin Show, and they just come a-knocking, and I can't thank you enough. This week's sponsor is a special one. I've already introduced you to Brian Bihar, our guest today. Well, did you know Brian Bihar has a special remote control? available for your television. That's right. It's called the BB Remote Control. Set to Bihar. That's right. Just hand over the BB Remote Control to whoever's in charge of the TV. When they try and watch a show, it'll choose a show that Brian Bihar was a part of instead of the one they want to watch. That's right. Suddenly you're watching Andrew Richter Saves the Universe. Sit back and enjoy eight simple rules. Time to watch The New Adventures of Old Christine. Hey, time to get ready for Last Man Standing. Well, what do you know? Fuller House is on. That's right. Now with the Brian Bihar remote control, you can enjoy all of Brian Bihar's catalog, any time of day, all day, every day. Available at Amazon, Costco, and wherever fine remote controls are sold. All right. Well, definitely check that out because, and you're going to want it, especially after hearing my interview with Brian and all the great shows he's been a part of. Very excited to help him promote his product. All right. And now I'm excited to share with everyone my conversation I had with Brian Bihar. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm excited to welcome to the show producer, writer, Brian Bihar. How are you, Brian? I'm great. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. We've never actually spoken, even though People like will probably naturally assume we went to Hebrew school together because we've texted so many for so many years. But this is the first time I've ever heard your voice, so it's very exciting. Yes, Brian and I are longtime Twitter friends. We've been uh, tweeting together for many, many years, and this is the first time we've actually uh, heard each other's voices. So it. <laughs> And I'm afraid that Jeff's a little alarmed at, at how how deep and rich my baritone is. It's often compared to 70s soul singer Lou Rawls, but not by anyone under 60 years old. So I hope I've uh, not scared anyone off with it. But yes, but it, it, true, we have become tw- actual Twitter friends. It is it is possible. Yeah, it totally is. And your voice is soothing, and I find it relaxing. And I may play it back when I try to sleep at night. <laughs> it's wonderful. No, I. Uh, 
I haven't worked in uh, I haven't worked in a few months, so I uh, I'm open for any jobs at uh, at a Quiet Storm FM station. I am in fact open for anything. So happy to be here and happy to soothe you. <laughs> you have been a part of a lot of cool TV shows. Let's maybe talk about some of the Brian Bihar greatest hits. I well, most people don't describe it. I often describe that I've been on every failed show since the '90s. But as I've gotten older and start to look at my uh, my IMDb page when I try to fall asleep at night, I'm like, oh, there were actually some some good successful shows. I've been on. I counted this morning because I knew I'd be talking to you. Um, 21 shows, I think, in the last 25 years. Ask away, whatever whatever you want to know within my legal limits. I can. Uh, I'll tell you all I can. That's actually amazing amount of shows to be a part of. Can't wait to dive in. You're also Emmy nominated. Have you been nominated for more than the one Emmy? Just the one. Just the one? uh, Yeah, just one. That was uh, ironically for Fuller House, which was not a huge critically acclaimed show, but we moved it into the, the kids family category and that got us nominated. But I should mention, you know, the show aired its final episode about a year ago, but literally right before I came on with you today, I got a notification that uh, Fuller House was nominated for Favorite Family Show for the Nickelodeon Kids' Choice Awards, and that Candace Cameron Bure was nominated for Best Actress, and that's for any TV show. Even in our swan song, it's still resonating with kids. When you take a show like Fuller House, you're not expecting that to be the sort of the mother load of where a majority of your awards have come from just sort of shows that if you find your lane and appeal to appeal to who a show's meant to appeal for, you'll sort of get rewarded for it. And that's a show I didn't, you know, I had not really known a lot about the original Full House. I mean, my, my kids were obsessed. I had, I had a daughter who watched it almost on a continuous loop on Nick at Night. I myself had never seen it before taking this job. So I, I didn't know how addictive it was, but it really is like meth for kids. I mean, children love it. At some point, I stopped fighting it and just really sort of gave in and began to understand its magic and its allure. And, and kids really, really respond. The Fuller House is a good tease, but let's end with that also. Let's go back in time. Yes, sir. And talk about some of the older shows. You got it. So you've done a lot. And again, but before I forget, congratulations on the Emmy nomination. That's one more than I have. So you're one up on me on the Emmys. And most people, probably. (laughs) As you know, I was thrilled to be nominated. Oh, we lost to Sesame Street. So that was incredibly humbling. You lost to Sesame Street? I thought I was like a big shot getting all dressed up and taking, a you know, the Netflix limo to the Emmys and walking the red carpet. And then, holy shit, we lost to, uh, we lost to Big Bird and Grover. But it was kids TV category. They've kind of had the stranglehold on it. But I, I like that that's my arch nemesis. Not Parks and Recreation or 30 Rock. My Waterloo is uh, <laughs> is Sesame Street. Well, if you're going to lose to anyone, there's worse people you can lose to than, than Big Bird. I would have probably voted for them too, if I'm being totally honest. So Andy Richter controls the universe. Yes, sir. Andy Richter... Conan O'Brien's sidekick gets his own TV show. What was Andy like to work with? I remember that. I remember enjoying that show, it, but it didn't. It didn't last. It was a, just a one season thing. Like many of the shows on, on my resume, that was one that like we had incredibly high hopes for. The pilot was amazing, and in fact, you know, written by Victor Fresco, that was nominated for an Emmy that year. I think best writing. So like that was considered one of the best five scripts in sitcoms in the whole year. And this was sort of like right 
at the beginning of the the single camera craze. You know, I think so we were nominated that year, just to give you some context, I think we were nominated that year against the pilot uh, for Malcolm in the Middle. So these were like sort of Fox's first foray outside of animation and into single camera. And it was like a really cool, adventurous show, like really obscure jokes and cutaways and really fast-paced. And Andy was great. You know, for people who only knew him as Conan's sidekick, I think he was a real eye-opener that he definitely had the potential to be a TV star. The show went two years, but it just never clicked as sort of a ratings hit. I think Malcolm was probably more in line with shows like The Simpsons and Family Guy, just in terms of being, even though it was single camera and not animated, they were still family shows. And Andy Richter was a show set in a workplace with just a lot of fantasy sequences. So probably the the most prestigious show that I've been on in terms of like critical acclaim and cult following. It's one that people ask me about all the time really has kind of a disproportionate following relative to the actual numbers it did when it was on. Very proud to have been part of it. I think if you're going to create a show and it doesn't succeed or, you know, it doesn't last as long, sometimes shows don't last and it's not because they are necessarily bad, right? Just maybe they didn't catch on and maybe something distracted the public at that point. But it's to me, like I, what you just described is, is how I think of Firefly or Freaks and Geeks, right? It was very short-lived but people still talk about it. And there's a million other shows that would have just as many episodes as those that no one could ever name ever. So it's like, it's an interesting, like for some people to talk about a show that was so short lived, I think that's, I know, I'm sure you would have loved for it to go on and, and, and made. Absolutely. But you know, you're, you're hundred percent right that like you can be on a, on a canceled show that is an embarrassment or you can be on a canceled show that has a rabid cult following. And obviously, you know, you know, which one I'd prefer and especially in this in the new streaming era, there's no shortages of new and burgeoning platforms where shows like you know the ones you mentioned, like Freaks and Geeks and Firefly, are always going to find new homes and new platforms and the new and new abilities to reach audiences in many ways as if they were brand new shows. The concern of the audience in what is brand new is of a far lesser concern than it was 15, 20 years ago. I think you can look at your Netflix menu and be faced with things that came out on Friday and things that came out 10 years ago. There's not that much to distinguish it. And I think the audiences will embrace both equally. That's a new way of consuming television that I think will give uh, a nice afterlife to shows that deserve. You know, there's plenty of shows which you'll never see again, and rightfully so. But like, you know, a show like Andy Richter, I think will probably find a place and there'll always be kind of disaffected teens who are like, Hey, I like that show more than what's currently on the network. That's an exciting, uh, an exciting opportunity. It's interesting when DVDs came out and they somebody accidentally discovered they could put entire shows on DVD, and that sort of lit and created certain popularities of shows that no one had ever seen before, and even brought back Family Guy. That's exactly what I was going to mention. Is that's a show that has been twice canceled. I don't think Fox realized the you know, sort of the creative powder keg they were sitting on until they saw the 
the sort of those the first week numbers from DVD sales, and they realized like perhaps what was not being reflected in sort of the week to week numbers, and you know, like sort of the old way that the Nielsen's had done the ratings was just sort of the enthusiasm level, how rabid those fans were. It was not people who were just kind of passively watching it, but people who were completely obsessed. And and now that's 20 years later. I mean, I'm, when I was on Andy Richter, we had some writers who had just left Family Guy because it had been recently canceled. And now 20 years later, that show is still a juggernaut. And, you know, with all, you know, with all of Seth MacFarlane's various spinoffs as well. And I don't think any of those would have happened, you know, were it not for the exact dynamic that you described in terms of the release of the DVD. Right. And now with streaming, it's all there. You don't have to worry about Blockbuster Video. Blockbuster Video is a place people used to get videos for those listening. Thank you. The, the... <laughs> no, no, you do need to explain. I mean, I, all of my references are 60 years old, but uh, guys like us take for granted for sometimes that people know what we're talking about. And Andy Richter was on, was on a network called Fox. They still have that, right? I think so. <laughs> I haven't been on TV in so long that I forget what the, what's around. Right. So so maybe there's always that chance it could light up again. But then sometimes it's with like with Arrested Development, you realize you really can't go back home. <laughs> I mean, they tried. But again, no one would have provided that opportunity had Netflix not come around. You know, like that was a show that was beloved by critics, discerning, you know, comedy nerds and no one else. I was in the category of comedy nerd. I owned Arrested Development on DVD, seen every episode. You know, I was obsessed. I don't think, you know, had if these new platforms didn't come around, I don't think there would have been that reboot. Now, whether it reached the level of expectations for its most diehard fans, I can't say, but I, I thought it was a cool effort. I'm glad they got the chance and now they know not to do it again. Yeah, it was funny because my daughter had just started watching Arrested Development and then season four came out and she didn't realize, like you said earlier, to exact your exact point, time wasn't a factor in her watching it. She just knew it was a show that dad said was funny. So she's sitting there watching episode series one, two, and three, and then four, she can't figure out why everyone looks different. <laughs> you know, but think about it. That was the only obstacle. That was the only thing that she had to contend with. Like this new generation, especially in the way they consume television, has such instant gratification. I mean, it's almost, we've now become the old altar cockers telling people about, oh, you know, back when we were kids, A, there were only three channels, and B, you had to wait. I had to wait until Friday night at eight o'clock to watch the Brady Bunch go into the Partridge family. There was no other way of seeing it. There was no on demand. There was no streaming. There, you know, there were no DVDs. If there was a show you liked, you saw it once a week, during the season and you were screwed in the summer. The flip side is I distinctly remember being four and five years old and being obsessed with the Brady Bunch and not being able to wait for Friday night to come soon enough. There was something magical about it. And I'm sure there's new versions of that. But, you know, for me, it definitely created more demand, more anticipation, more excitement. I yearned to see a new episode of my favorite sitcom. Even then, I was pretty hooked. Yeah, I was talking about that on Facebook recently. I was posting, reflecting on WandaVision, and WandaVision is, you know, releasing weekly, and everyone's talking about it weekly, and everyone's examining that episode. And I was making the case, I was like, weekly release is better for new shows than dropping an entire season all at once. If you drop a season all at once, 
You can't discuss it with anyone unless they actually already saw it. Somebody's going to watch the whole thing and ruin it for you. And I never understood the why a Netflix or someone would want to do that because everyone stops talking about it a week and a half later. It's done. Like with WandaVision, Disney Plus is going to get two months at least, eight episodes of week after week after week renewed interest in a show versus a flash and burn. Kimmy Schmidt, oh, it's out. Everyone, oh, next Friday. No one's talking about it. You know what I mean? I definitely see merit to both. I discovered the same phenomenon that you were going through. I think I was a year behind on Amazon's The Boys, for that, you know, that really like dark superhero show that Love it. is sweeping youth culture. So I blazed through and, and binged the first season and then I started the second season and then it was like, it kind of just stopped. I was like, what the fuck just happened? Like, Wait, you mean I have to wait week to week? But then it, like you said, it really enabled me to to miss it and to talk about it and to read recaps and not have it spoiled. And it felt like how TV used to be. And then the flip side, and I guess this is not even an argument for binging, but what I have found, A, having run Fuller House, but also as a consumer of a lot of Netflix and Amazon and Apple shows is I will watch a show in two days be thoroughly obsessed and engrossed, which is something you couldn't do in the week-to-week model. But the flip side is I will watch a show and then be done in two days, and then it's gone. Even with the farewell to Fuller House, which, which I know we'll speak about maybe a little more later, that we had so much anticipation building towards the finale. Even that, people talked about it and tweeted about it and, and wrote articles about it that weekend, and that was it. So even a show's finale didn't really have that much of a, a communicative afterlife beyond the that initial burst that comes with a one weekend binge. And that's that's too bad. Like you said, I miss missing a show and I miss talking about a show and I miss predicting how it's gonna how it's gonna end. What was interesting, like you know, is when you can mix it. Like I was so behind on breaking bad, but I was able to catch up before the last two seasons. So I had sort of the best of both worlds. I was able to binge it and be fully engrossed, you know, really sort of wonder what the next week would bring. And that I found that to be a kind of a delightful mix. Yes, I actually I had the exact experience. We binged Breaking Bad, and then I watched the last eight episodes live, me as they were aired. That's exactly right. That's exactly yeah. That's I I might have had a few more episodes. I think I had the last two years, but who knows whether I would have been as obsessed with it had I watched it week to week when it first came out. And I have no idea why I didn't. You know, but I think we're just less aware of like this sort of prestige TV even. 10 years ago. Like I would watch The Sopranos when it came out the night of, and I would watch Mad Men. Somehow Breaking Bad, I missed. I missed The Wire when it came out, which is my favorite show of all time. I missed Deadwood when it first came out. So like, I think there was just fewer people talking about prestige television. That's also become a sort of a niche of entertainment journalism that has grown, you know, as the streaming world has grown. Exactly. I, but I, I agree with you as well. The, the kind of, it's nice to be able to binge a show that you haven't seen so you can catch up. I do love that, that week to week. It's nice to be able to talk to people about a show and really kind of em- embrace it. All right, let's talk about other cool shows you've been a part of. That's why I'm here. So here's the cool one you were on. You were on Eight Simple Rules. So that was the John Ritter show. He he unfortunately passed away. And then you came on board after John Ritter had passed away. So that's correct. I was there for season three of three. So that involved the transition because they decided to keep the show going, but obviously it had to change and evolve 
relatively quickly. And it was really sort of bold that they were able to carry on. You know, there is not a long history of shows that were able to even get another season and a half like Eight Simple Rules did after their lead had passed on in the middle of production. So A, I give just huge kudos to that cast and crew. You know, like there were still most of the people there were people who had worked with John Ritter and were carrying on in his absence. So like I had the luxury and a lot of the writer season three had the luxury of coming in from the outside. So as sad as it was, it wasn't someone who we, we grew, we grew up watching, but we didn't know him personally. So we were able to have just a sort of a little more objectivity, how to carry on with the show. But I think most of the big decisions were made prior to my arrival. And I was just talking about it with someone actually a couple of days ago. What I found most interesting is that didn't attempt to replace John Ritter per se with like an equal swap. This, it was not Jared Goff for Matthew Stafford. Use the parlance that you might understand. When John Ritter first died, and I was just reading about it in Entertainment Weekly, there was talk, should they bring in Henry Winkler? Should they bring in Tony Danza? The thought was, you need to bring in another beloved 70s or 80s dad or beloved sitcom figure to take that role. And what they ended up doing instead is they kind of just sort of created a new dynamic. They brought in James Garner as the grandfather, Suzanne Plachette as the grandmother, David Spade, just, and I don't even know what his role was, but he was, he basically played David Spade, the snarky cousin. I remember Pamela Anderson was on for a, a handful of episodes. So they were able to sort of in the composite rebuild the family without sort of doing a disservice or really disrespecting the memory of John Ritter's. Give them a ton of credit, but it was definitely, you were definitely aware that you were coming into a sad place. You know, even coming into season three, the sadness was still palpable, you know, because you're still dealing, you're still writing episodes about people who lost their father. And also knowing that those actors, many of whom were children, had lost their TV father who they had grown just as close to. So it was a really interesting experience sort of just parachute into not having been part of the original the original entity. The cast that remained from the original, Katie Seagal, Kaylee, whose last name I cannot pronounce, but she went on to the Big Bang Theory. Yeah, Kaylee Cuoco. Cuoco, and she's now in Flight Attendant. Correct. I mean, Katie Seagal is she's an she's an incredible actress. It's it's funny how her and Ed O'Neill both were married with children. You know, white trash couple. You didn't realize at the time how stellar both they were. Yeah, because when when you were watching them married with children, you kind of if you hadn't seen them somewhere else, you assume that's just who they were. Katie Seagal was a an incredible actress, and b the focus of the show then shifted. You know, whereas she had sort of been sitcom wife to John Ritter. And, and it was his journey navigating parenthood and his, the daughters growing up and starting to date. It then became a show about how does Katie Seagal, as a single mom, keep this family together after the loss of, of the patriarch? You know, she was able to completely, you know, the thrust of a show just completely changes midway. And, you know, obviously this one was sort of a force majeure situation, you know, where you had no choice. No, she's awesome. And, and Kaylee Cuoco, you knew, was going to be a big deal. But I don't know that anyone anyone could have anticipated just 
how gifted a comic actress she's become. I mean, she's really, sitcoms aren't as big as they were when Friends were on, but she's probably the closest equivalent we have to a Jennifer Aniston right now in terms of that kind of breakout female star. I've worked with a ton. She's turned into a real sensation. Speaking of huge sensations, you worked with Julia Louise Dreyfus in The New Adventures of Old Christine which is yet another one of her Emmy Award winning roles. Yes, it seems like everything she touches, uh, except for Watching Alley, which I wasn't on. No, I mean, even when I was with her there, I, I was describing her as the Michael Jordan of sitcoms. I mean, I think she, you don't, you don't even have to break it down by gender. She's, she's that good. You know, she is as skilled and as funny and as nice. She's truly made for this form. Like, I have no idea whether she could be, a, you know, comic lead in, in movies, but in half-hour sitcoms, like, she's definitely the best that I've ever seen. I think she's she's won the most Emmys for the most different characters. I think she's won for three different characters. I think that was, didn't she set a record recently? I think she did. Veep was brilliant. Prior to Veep, you know, having seen her in Seinfeld and worked with her on Old Christine, you're like, wow, she's she's done it all already. You know, I never thought there would be something that were that even elevated her game. You know, as much as I like old Christine, like I mean, Veep is a whole other level of just absurdist, and it got even more absurd. You know, once the original creators left and they brought in new head showrunners, and like it just went totally off the rails in a good way. I thought in its last two three seasons, that's definitely one of my all time faves in terms of just pure brutal joke telling. All right, so then you worked on the original run of Last Man Standing? Yes. In many of these cases, I worked on either the first season and not the rest or just the last. So, yes, I was on uh, I was on first season of Last Man Standing. And that's a show that was kind of a slow starter. It, it's never been a ratings giant, but it always does way better than you think. It's never been critically acclaimed because he has kind of a, you know, middle American appeal that like doesn't get written up a lot about in in the New Yorker or in the New York Times or Deadline Hollywood, but like he has his style and he has his fan base and they love him. When you bring it up, like it, that's like so long ago to me, that was 10 years ago. And that's a show that's still on the air in first run. But again, it, it went off the air and, and I think they saw how well it did in syndication and they brought it back, which I would say never happens, but we've already talked about it happening with family guys. So it obviously does happen occasionally. I had read, and again, who knows what's true when you read it. It was the success of the Roseanne reboot that got them thinking about bringing Tim Allen back because it was a very similar demographic. I believe that to be true. I also believe that in the um, post-2016 election world, Hollywood and, and the TV business is nothing if not a copycat business trying to understand after the fact why something worked. And I think Roseanne came back because Trump was elected. And then Last Man Standing came back because Roseanne was so hugely successful. But truth be told, and I was, you know, I have no skin in the game. I wasn't there when Last Man Standing was canceled. But the truth was that other than Modern Family, Last Man Standing was the second highest rated sitcom on ABC when it was canceled. And this was ahead of fancier shows. I mean, I, Goldberg's comes to mind, Fresh Off the Boat. There was just a lot of really kind of more hipster, critically acclaimed shows that may have done, may or may not have done better in the demographic. But like Last Man Standing's 
household and the 18 to 49 numbers were better than all these other shows that they kept. It just wasn't as cool of a show. And my guess is it was probably more expensive to make by season seven or eight. But, you know, shows get canceled for all sorts of weird reasons. And, and I think that one was just TV executives don't talk about multicam sitcoms anymore. Just to be clear, multicams means, you know, those shows that are filmed in front of an audience where you hear laughter versus single cam shows, which are filmed as if they were a movie. That's the really the big distinction. And the TV business in the last 10, 15 years has really moved away from the multicams and toward the uh, single cams, I think much to their own peril. That might be for another day. Deep dive into camera, the amount of cameras you should use in another episode. Okay. <laughs> well, I do. I mean, you're laughing at me and rightfully so, but it, you know, it's not really a camera discussion so much as it is. I think that the TV business has moved away from what works in the history of the sitcom. A multicam audience show has been the number one comedy on the air every year for the last 60 years, except for one year when MASH was. And yet, I would say 80 to 90% of the comedies that are made these days are single camera because they're cooler. And, and now you have a generation of kids streaming that are used to it. So I think maybe now that's it's found its niche. But like, you know, a show like The Office, which is beloved and does gangbusters on streaming platforms, wasn't the, the giant blockbuster that it is now during first run. I think it really was Modern Family was the first actual breakout single camera hit. I don't get to decide what shows are on the air, sadly enough. It looks like the move is to been to single camera and I gotta I gotta roll with that. Well one day you're gonna change that. I, I know you will because they're gonna listen to this episode and they're gonna play it back and they're gonna be like, wait, Jeff and Brian, I think they were onto something there. They were onto something. I mean we're you know I mean we're sort of huge influencers, especially in the t in the inter entertainment industry and uh, people listen. Exactly. But when we speak there's uh there's a certain resonance that comes with it. And uh, I like to think we're going to change television just with this one interview. I think we might. We might. You don't know. If two Jews can't change television, who can? Like, where are they going to find two Jews in the television business? Uh, okay, so you also worked on Kirsty, and that was with Michael Richards. So now you've worked with half the Seinfeld crew. Did I ever work with Jason Alexander? He was on an episode of Kirsty. Okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna say guest starring doesn't count. So I mean, like full time. Yeah, all right, I, you're the commish, man. You're you're the the big mocker. So I'm gonna defer to you. But uh, yes, I have worked full time with two of the four, as you may have noticed, never on the show that they're most famous for. Although old Christine got there, old Christine won her won her Emmys. But Kirsty was one we had big hopes for. There was veritable all star team because you had Rhea Perlman, you had Kirstie Alley, you had Michael Richards. And this was on TV Land and coming on the heels of uh, Hot in Cleveland. I think they thought like we can sort of recapture that magic of gathering a bunch of familiar faces from other shows, make sort of another all star ensemble. Sometimes it clicks. In this case, the ratings would indicate that perhaps it did it. But we tried. We tried. You know, there's a, there's an old aphorism about television. The television television doesn't use our television creates stars. So a show like Kirsty kind of went against the accepted wisdom. Gathering a bunch of people you know from elsewhere may have been inherently doomed. Whereas a show like Friends, now they're household names, but at the time they were six complete unknowns. You know, the only one anyone knew was really was Courtney Cox. 
And that was from the Bruce Springsteen Dancing in the Dark video and, and like a guest spot on Family Ties. But that was it. Everyone else were just kind of journeyman actors and actresses trying to get cast on pilots. I feel a need to defend Courtney Cox. She was also on Misfits. <laughs> okay. I don't know what Misfits is. So now I'm turning over the mic to you and, and, and you can tell me what that is. Some like x men type show. I thought you were going to defend the Dancing in the Dark video, but you're more of a born-to-run guy. I'm more of a born-to-run guy, exactly. See, I read his tweets, people. <laughs> I'm, not too, I'm not too fancy to see what he's still up to. That, I appreciate that. All right, so now we're back to Fuller House. You mentioned earlier you didn't really watch Full House. Did you have to kind of binge it to catch up? Fuller House, and, and I have to admit, I never fully watched Full House. It was just one of those shows that just never uh, was on my radar either. Fuller House takes place... Later, it kind of takes on with the kids, the original cast, Bob Saget, John Stamos, Dave Coulet, they're there, but they then take kind of a backseat to the, the kids' new life. But I imagine all, there's a lot of tropes there and stuff like that, callbacks, all that kind of good stuff. So how did you, did you immerse yourself in Full House and then kind of move forward with Fuller House? Funny story. Like I said, I had never seen it. And I got a call from my agent saying, we got you a meeting at Fuller House, the Full House reboot. Now, as hard as it is to imagine just five, six years later, remember, there had been no reboots at the time. This was really the first of the major, let's bring back an original cast. Old sitcoms had been made into theatricals. There was the Brady Bunch movie and the Beverly Hillbillies movie, but nobody had really tried using the original cast just years and years later. Now it's become so prevalent in large part because of the success of like two shows we've mentioned, Fuller House and the Roseanne reboot that became the Connors. So I had no interest. For me, that was like Full House was like a TGIF show. I was too old to have understood it. So I'm like, I'm not doing it. And I remember my daughter who basically said to me like, Dad, you're doing this because this is going to be a hit. And I was like, seriously? And she sat me down and we watched a handful of Full Houses Enough that I could, you know, at least sound up to speed, in, you know, in a, in a show meeting. And, you know, over time, I didn't, I didn't watch a ton of them, you know, because once we were there, you were, you know, you're dealing with, you know, with a lot of new characters. And I was able, you know, I'm, I'm not the world's smartest man, but I was able to pick up on some of the subtle recurring jokes that they had brought over from the original show. That said, we definitely tried, in all earnestness, like incredibly hard to honor the legacy of the first show. What I have found in my time sort of in the full house, fuller house universe, for those, not everyone watches it like you or me, but for those who, that it is an important show to, it's an incredibly important show. This is definitely a series in which, I don't know how wide the appeal was, but it's incredibly deep in terms of obsession. I found it in two places, with kids even now loving the new one as much as they love the old one, and with 30 to 40-year-old women who grew up watching the first one and love the new one for all of its nostalgic value. And those were sort of our two audience sweet spots. And we went like really out of our way, especially in the final season, to really immerse ourselves in the legacies in trying to like bring through all the through lines and even the ones that had been begun. In, you know, I don't want to give any spoilers, but... You know, there's a lot of through lines that began even in the original series that were played out and sort of culminated in the final season of Fuller House. So that was, it was cool to find myself in a, in a universe that I knew nothing about, 
but over time to really kind of appreciate it and enjoy it. Any thoughts on the Aunt Becky situation? How dare you? <laughs> I guess I didn't say don't ask me that. No, I'll try. I'll try to answer that. We don't. We don't, we don't have to. No, 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 no. I'm, listen, I said I'm an open book. I lied. I said I'm an open book, and then gave him like severe limitation. No, I didn't do that. She's an incredibly sweet person. The irony is that of all those legacy people, she was by far the nicest to my partner and I when we became the showrunners of Fuller House in season four. All I, can, I, I can't really speak to it, any of the sort of the inside machinations on why she was not in season five, other than to say the decision was not in my hands and those were, those were the kind of way above my pay grade calls that were made at the at the studio and network level. But obviously, in a perfect world, it would have been great to have Aunt Becky as a character and Lori as a person on set for season five, you know, for reasons that I'm sure your audience is aware that was sort of just not plausible. Gotcha. Yeah, that was great. Sorry, I had to ask the hard hitting questions. (laughs) I didn't know that I was dealing with Edward R. Burrow here. What else you got? What else I got? (laughs) I always thought it was funny because Bob Saget played just the the loving, perfect rated G father, but his his stand-up itself is anything but. Do you know Bob from your stand-up days? Have you, you, or Dave? Dave's a... uh... I have worked with Dave. Yeah, Dave's a Detroit man, right? Dave is from Detroit. I worked with him at Mark Ridley's Comedy Castle. I got to open for him, and he okay. was a super cool dude. Yeah, he's very sweet. I've never met Bob Saget, but I mean, I know I've seen his stand-up. I, oh, no, no, I've seen Bob Saget, actually. I have seen Bob Saget once in, in live. I didn't meet him or anything like that, but... seen his stand-up, so you... Yeah, yeah. He's not suddenly Danny Tanner offstage. no. His personality is a lot funnier and darker and closer to his post-Full House stand-up life than it was to his Danny Tanner, TGIF, America's Dad. Which is ironic, though, that after years of distancing himself from that really saccharine persona, that when he came back, he couldn't have been sweeter in terms of really kind of embracing the character again. And he had a lot more perspective on it and a lot more perspective on what Danny Tanner means to people and what Full and Fuller House means to people. So he, I mean, he's still like a persnickety fella. You know, there's no question about that. You know, he he definitely can make your life hard, but he's a guy who, who really when the cameras were rolling, really loved playing Danny Tanner in a way that he might not have appreciated as much the first go around. And I thought that was kind of a a lovely transformation and an example of sort of emotional growth that that was nice to see. He's even added Danny Tanner bits into his stand-up. He's no longer running from it. And I understand why he did. If you're a X-rated comic and you're only known for the most G-rated role, you know, that's a huge disconnect. It, it seemed like a lot of that sort of inner Jew angst had kind of worked itself out over the years. And this has been great. I, my only, I regret that we haven't talked sooner, having known each other for so long. You're fascinating. Your perspective on things is incredible. And you've done a lot. And it's very impressive. Thrilled to come on and have you, and have you remind me that like, it has not all been for naught. I, I've been a huge admirer of yours for a long time, both you know, the ability to merge comedy with entrepreneurship. Those are sort of two areas that usually remain on kind of separate parallel paths, but rarely, you know, rarely the twain do they meet. So you've been always been someone of great interest to me. I'm glad we finally got to talk. Continue to stalk you on Twitter. 
You can, and anyone who wants to stalk me on Twitter, I'm still, I'm still there. Tell everyone where they can keep up with you on the socials. On Twitter, it's at Brian, B-R-B-R-Y-A-N-B-E-H-A-R. I should be hitting 186,000 followers by the end of this broadcast. I think today is a big day. Not that I, not that I check every day, but you know, I only bring it up because you knew me when I was at, I think less than 2000 and I really was sort of floundering on social media, but your hashtag games and hashtag roundup and, and all the things that you do, you know, all these sort of opportunities and platforms you provide on Twitter was really a great entree for me into learning how to navigate social media, which was really foreign to me. You know, I'd been stuck at under a thousand followers for a year and a half, two years. So by virtue of sort of the games and opportunities you provided, I was able to meet a ton of really interesting people and sort of build my follower base that way. And yeah, it's much appreciated. I don't, I don't know if I don't know if people ever thank you for uh, for what you do, but it meant a lot to me because I was uh, I was a little lost and I was also a little depressed. And I turned to your your games as a as both a, a way of uh, seeking solace and and finding community online at a time when you know when I definitely did not have it. Sorry if I got a little earnest there. I've been meaning to say it for a long time, so now I've said it. I'm not crying. You're crying. What? <laughs> no, I do. I appreciate all those kind words. It was, it's so sweet and so nice to hear it. I, it's one of those things like you don't need to hear it, but when someone says it, it's really, really nice to hear it. So thank, thank you very much. All right. How fun was that? If you love Fuller House or any of Brian Bihar's shows, get on Twitter right now. Send him a tweet. Say, I love your stuff. I love what you do, Brian. Keep doing it and tell him you heard him. I'm live from Detroit, the Jeff Dewaskin Show. He'll get a kick out of it. So will I. And you know what time it is now, folks. It's time for the hashtag roundup hashtag of the week. That's right. This is where we spotlight an amazing hashtag game from the many, many games from hashtag roundup. The hashtag roundup app is totally free and available at the Google Play Store and iTunes App Store. And you can follow us on Twitter at hashtag roundup and play along. And one day, one of your tweets may show up on Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dewaskin Show. This week's hashtag, hashtag add a TV show to a movie. That's right. The ultimate TV movie hashtag mashup. Maybe Brian will hear one of these and turn it into a real TV movie. How exciting would that be? This comes from Mile High Tags, a weekly game on Hashtag Roundup, hosted by superfan Jerry and Whoopi Cat. All right, here we go. Hashtag add a TV show to a movie. Sesame Street car named Desire. <laughs> Sorry, Brian. Didn't mean to bring up Sesame Street again. All right, let's keep going. The Big Lebowski Theory. The Romper Room. Two broke girls named Thelma and Louise. Ha <laughs> ha. These are all great. Hashtag add a TV show to a movie. Master Chef and Commander. Fifty Shades of Grey Anatomy. The Big Bang Theory of Everything. Animal House Hunters. Dirty Dancing with the Stars. The Golden Girls Gone Wild. The Man from Uncle Buck. The Man in the Iron Chef Mask. Broadcast News Radio. All great. Hashtag add a TV show to a movie. Tweets. And finally, Godfather Knows Best. Oh, all right. Those are some great hashtag add TV show to a movie tweets. Again, they'll be retweeted at Jeff DeWaskin Show and in the show notes. Show these tweeters some love and retweet their tweets and play along at hashtag Roundup. And one day, one of your tweets may be on live from Detroit, the Jeff DeWaskin Show. 
Well, I can't believe it, but we're at the end of another episode. This has been episode 45. I want to thank my guest, Brian Bihar, for joining me. Thank you all for coming back week after week. It means the world to me, and I'll see you next week. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Jeff Dwoskin Show with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Now go repeat everything you heard and sound like a genius. Catch us online at thejeffdwoskinshow.com or follow us on Twitter at Jeff Dwoskin Show, and we'll see you next time.